I don't know if you've ever uh, taken someone's place when it seems impossible to take their place. Um, I'm sure most of you know who Coach K is. He's the winningest coach in Division I college of basketball history. He coached at Duke University for 42 years. He, he is iconic, literally. He's the face of Duke basketball. The court they play on is called Coach K Court. Duke's arena, Cameron Indoor uh, Arena, seats 9,300 people, um, but not every student gets to get a ticket to the game. So when the tickets start to roll out, students fill this uh, big grassy area outside Cameron Indoor in tents, camping out days upon days, like having like, you know, sessions where one student stays at the tent in line and another student goes to class. That very field is called Shoseskiville. Now imagine this. Once you walk into Cameron Indoor Stadium, you feel the shadow of the presence of Mike Shashevsky hanging over the place. And he retired. And he helped pick his replacement. It's a former player. His name is John Shire. He's, he just turned 35. He's the youngest basketball coach in major college basketball. Right now, the Blue Devils sit in seventh place in the ACC. They are 15 and 6. They are unranked. And you can already hear the whispers. Is the glory gone from Duke basketball? Can John Shire possibly fill this, these shoes? Can he continue to keep Duke at the top? I mean... How can you succeed when you have such big shoes to fill? What will happen now that our leader is gone? This is the question that plagues Israel. We, we last left Elijah at a low point. He's hoping, remember, for Israel to be renewed. Elijah learns that Jezebel and Ahab have once again rejected Yahweh as their God and king. And this will mean great peril for God's people. And it does. Ahab and Jezebel continue to lead Israel in worship of Baal and Asherah. They go to war with Syria and they win. They unjustly take land from a man named Naboth by setting up a kangaroo court and ironically accuse Naboth of blasphemy against God of all things and treason against the king. And they take his land and they stone him. And Elijah pronounces judgment Again, over Ahab, that his blood will be licked up and eaten by dogs. And weirdly, Ahab hears these words and he repents. And God responds by delaying judgment and seemingly giving forgiveness. But again, Ahab's repentance is just remorse. He doesn't want to lose his kingdom. And quickly, he is back to worshiping the Baals and the Asherah. And additionally, he is joined up with Jehoshaphat, the king in the south, in a war once again against Syria. And it is here that he is wounded in battle and dies. And his son takes his place. We're told in 1 Kings, or 2 Kings chapter 1 that his son takes a fall. While he lay dying, he inquires of, not of Yahweh, but of Baal, whether he will live or die. And so he sends messengers out to the prophets of Baal, asking that question. Elijah meets the messengers on their way to inquire and tells them to go back. Guess what? Ahaziah will not make it. 
So the 50 return back and tell the king, and the king sends the 50 back again. And this time, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and the 50 are destroyed. So the king sends another 50. And again, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and the 50 are destroyed. A third time, the king sends 50, and this time they are the messenger, the leader, the captain of these messengers cries out to Elijah, please spare our life. Don't kill us. Come back with us and we will tell the king ourselves. And so that's what Elijah does. They all go back and tell the king. Because you have sent messengers to inquire, and this is how it's phrased in, uh, in Kings, to inquire of Belzebub, the god of Ekron, Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die, and Ahaziah dies. And this is where we show up in 2 Kings chapter 2 and read, In the wake of Ahaziah's death, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Maybe we just pause here at the beginning of this and go, what? Right? I mean, and maybe you know this story, you know, from like flannel graph days, or maybe if that was before your time, video days. But like, when you're first reading this, you're going, what? God's taking, Elijah's going up in a world, what's going on? It's abrupt, right? It's like Elijah has this ministry, he does this thing, and then all of a sudden Elijah is departing. And the question of this, that the event of Ahaziah's death and his inquiring to the prophets of Baal and the question of Elijah being taken up in a whirlwind is, is this the end of Israel? Will God's people be left without a prophet to rehash? Is there no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Now, this isn't a new question for Israel. It's been asked before. When Joshua succeeds Moses, the question's there. When Solomon succeeds David, what will become now of God's people? This is what major transitions do to our lives. Major events bring with it major questions. Our stories as God's people are deeply impacted by Changes in leadership, changes in house and home, upheavals in time and space. I was telling the folks in our membership class yesterday when there are these transitions from leaders and people in place, people make decisions to change things. This is in part that when the the kids go off to college, sometimes couples make changes in their relationship. That's why when there's changes at the top, people move on to a new company. It's why athletes enter the transfer portal. It's why shareholders need reassurance so they don't sell their stocks. Now imagine that you're in Israel during the time of Elijah. You've heard about the fire raining down from heaven. You've heard about the prophets of Baal on the run. How might your heart be melted by the news of Elijah departing in a chariot of fire to heaven? Sure, the sight and the story are like high-key awesome, but you are low-key not sure this thing with Yahweh is going to work. I mean, what now? 
Is Jezebel and the new king, whoever that is, just going to mow us down? And maybe think about this from the perspective of our first hearers who would have received this history in exile. They are living out the story of the loss of leaders who preserve the law and the worship of Yahweh. They're living it out in a foreign land. What about us, lost here in a foreign land? Will God even rescue us now? Can he? Is Messiah even possible? Has the promise gone? Like These are questions we ask, especially in exile, where promises appear to be failing. Like I want you to think about that now, because there's some, there's some dread to this question. When you go through moments that are cataclysmic, it could be a loss of a leader. It could be loss of a father, mother. It could be moving on from a community that you've known so well your whole life. Like when students leave RUF and go off to adult land, their number one question when they come into our church is like, this isn't like RUF. Like, what do you do in these moments when you're existentially like filled with dread about the next chapter? Now imagine if you're to a spiritual father or mother and they're gone. Or maybe they failed. Like, one of the things that's happening right now in the church with deconstruction narratives is the stories of failure of spiritual fathers and mothers and the dread that's left in the wake of that. What now? Maybe you sit here this morning, you feel harassed and helpless like someone without a shepherd without someone to care for you and watch over you, where it feels like it's all on you to to climb up out of the pit you've gotten yourself into, what questions do you ask in that pit? What reassurances do you need? Now, Elijah is on a journey. It's almost like the conquest, conquest of Canaan in reverse. He goes from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho. Now, Jericho, remember, is the town that's been rebuilt when God said, don't ever rebuild this town And the man who rebuilds it falls under judgment and dies. And yet there's still a town there. The town doesn't go away. The question is God's presence leaving God's place. And Elijah goes all the way along these boundary lines. He is the representative of God's presence in God's place. And he is leaving, it appears, the land. He's going as far to the Jordan River, and he's going to cross the river. Has God left us? Is the glory of God gone? And here's where the Lord provides reassurance. Reassurance in the form of what? Well, first, another prophet. First, Elijah, right? We read in Elisha. We read in chapter 19. That won't be the the last time I do that. Elijah, Elisha, come on, God. Why did you do that? But we read in chapter 19 that Elijah walked back to Israel from Damascus and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, working a plow. And Elijah throws his cloak on him. And the cloak here is a symbol of what? Elijah's calling as God's prophet. 
Like there's no ceremony. Like we're going to do uh, this whole thing with, with uh, you know, Charlie, who was up here earlier. He got ordained this, this last week um, at our presbytery meeting. Like he's not actually ordained. Like there's a ceremony for that, right? But he passed his ordination exams. Like you should clap for that. That's a big deal. Good job, Charlie. But we're going to do this thing next month sometime where we have an ordination service. And there's this whole ceremony where the man of God receives his calling. (laughs) Elijah just walks through town and throws his cloak on Elijah. It's weird. The cloak, the symbol of Elijah's calling is God's prophet. And Elijah receives that and leaves his father and mother and oxen and follows him, going so far as to sacrifice the oxen that he's tending to. He burns the ships, to something we talked about a few weeks ago, and follows. But then we don't hear about Elijah again until chapter 2. We aren't given any sort of succession plan. The readers don't know if Elisha actually carries the mantle of Elijah. And then we read in verse 3, the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out. There are more prophets. Like, think about the reassurance you feel when you realize you're not alone. When you're not the only one. You're not the only new person here. You're not the only Christian on your team. You're not the only one in your class who's majoring in this. You're not the only one at your job. There are more prophets. Elijah struggles with this feeling all throughout his ministry, right, that he is the lonely prophet. Three times, 1 Kings 18, 19, and 20, Elijah describes himself as the lone prophet. And God keeps showing Elijah, you're not alone. In this moment of transition and change, there are others. As Elijah is about to leave, prophets seem to spring up from the ground. And Elijah is now being shown that he is a father. What are they called? The sons of the prophet. He is a father to these prophets. You see, the courage of Elijah has elicited the courage of others. Right? This is truth, friends. I think about some of my formative years in following Christ on my college campus, I would meet someone who was boldly living out their faith in visible ways, and their courage to live a life of sacrificial love was inspiring to my young faith. There are other prophets. And maybe this is to be some encouragement to the older saints in this room. As you think about your own departure, there are others. God keeps showing up to you saying, I haven't forgotten you. The covenant will go on after you. You're not alone. God does this. Maybe when you find yourself in a place that is unlike your last place, and in this place it seems you are alone, suddenly God in his kindness reminds you there are faithful ones even here. These sons of the prophets are popping up, establishing themselves where? In the places of Israel's idolatry, right? At Bethel, the place of the two golden calves. Those golden calves are never rebuilt. Now, there's still prophets there, which we'll talk about later. But Jericho is back on the map. The Lord has sent prophets there too. 
That's the first encouragement. There are prophets, and they are in all the places where Israel has failed and sinned. And maybe in exile, to those first hearers, Yahweh is here too. And maybe where you're at right now, in your sin, or your idolatry, or in your failure, in your loneliness, in your loss, maybe Yahweh is here too. Now, of course, those prophets aren't so encouraging to Elijah. They say to him, don't you know that your Lord is taking away your master? And Elijah's like, yeah, I know, I know. Keep it to yourself. And this is the second thing. With Elijah gone, the question will be asked, is there a God in Israel? Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And the answer, there is a God in Israel. Yahweh is the God of Elijah, and now Elisha. There is a successor. Now, the whole scene is weird. Elijah's on a mission, going somewhere. Each time he tells Elijah, stay here at Gilgal, at Bethel, at Jericho, and Elijah says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going with you. Elijah remains. The cloak has been tossed. There is a successor. He is the one. He is the one, we're told here, who wears the mantle. And if he wears the mantle, he receives the call. And if he receives the call, then he must follow. If the spirit that is in Elijah It is the spirit that is in Elijah that will enable Elisha to continue to follow Elijah and his ministry. That's shown here. They come to the Jordan, just as Moses used his staff to divide the waters of the Jordan. And then later, his successor Joshua did the same. Elijah takes off his cloak, his robe, the mantle, which is symbolic that he is God's prophet, that he is the incarnate staff, the staff embodied that parts the waters. Elijah's mantle is symbolic of God's presence, both his grace and his judgment, his severe mercy. Wrapped in this mantle, Elijah is a human rod that strikes the land of Ahab. And now Elijah, Elisha, will wear this mantle, this cloak. And we see this, right? In verse 14, when the mantle is passed, Elisha takes the mantle that Elijah wore and divides the waters just as Elijah had done. And notice, Elijah is even a better successor than Joshua. Joshua enters the land after parting the rivers of the Jordan, and he destroys Jericho. Not Elisha. In verse 19 and 22, he heals the waters and the land. The land is described as unfruitful. The water's bad. It's a barren place. So Elijah says, bring me some salt. Salt is symbolic of seed here, a healing and fertile agent. He throws the salt into the spring and miraculously pronounces God's word over the water and the land, and the water's healed. Never again will it be unfruitful. Never again will it grow stagnant and cause death. This land will produce Elijah has a son, a successor. He wears Elijah's mantle. There is a God in Israel. How do we know? Elisha is his prophet. What Elijah says and does, Yahweh says and does. 
Oh man, how much do we long for and need one who wears the mantle? Now there's so much here, but you can be sure that Jesus will bear the mantle of Elijah. And that mantle is then given to the church. When Jesus goes away, he does not leave his church alone, but what does what? He sends his spirit. And when the spirit descends to the church at Pentecost, this mantle is passed from Jesus to Peter and from Peter to all the saints. And with all the saints to the uttermost parts of the earth. There is a successor that will embody God's presence in the world. What else? There is a successor who protects Israel as her head. In verses 3 and 5 of chapter 2, the sons of the prophets say to Elijah, Yahweh will take your master from you today. Literally, this reads in Hebrew, he will take Elijah, your master, from over your head today. The idea here in the Bible is that your head is symbolic for protector, guide. The head guides the body. Right Now we see this, some of your little babies in this room, with their big old heads on their toothpick little bodies. Where that head leans, the body follows. That's true for us, church. The head is symbolic of leadership. We use the term head coach. Why? Because the head guides. The head protects. The prophets say, you are about to lose this leadership, Elisha. Israel is about to have her head cut off. As Elijah's head, Elijah will enter into heaven. And Elijah will continue in the work of his master in Israel. Now, this is explained further at the end of our text. Now, this text, as I read it, controversial in its initial reading. We read about little boys being mauled by bears for making fun of Elijah's bald head. So be careful of making fun of people with bald, he- bald heads, kids. I remember somebody telling me that when I was a kid, by the way. This is George Costanza's favorite Bible verse. It's shocking and harsh, but more's going on here. The phrase for little boys can also mean young men or subordinates or underlings. This happens where? In Bethel, the place of Jeroboam's golden calves, and the context suggests something to us, that these underlings actually are priests of this shrine of Jeroboam. And Elijah's curse upon these groms is actually an act of headship. In the same way, uh, same vein as Elijah's attack on the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, the structure of the text is a chiasm. I'm not going to go through all that, but essentially a chiasm is like if you go and you camp somewhere, you have a system where you set up camp and you, you go into camp and you set it up. And when you go out of camp, like you do the same system in reverse to pull out of camp. That's what's happening in the text of this scripture. Like it is emphasizing things to us by its very structure and nature as it goes in and as it pulls back out. The underlings of the cult of the golden calf mock Elijah because of his hairy head that has been taken away from him. His over-shepherd, his father of the faith, 
has been taken from him, and Elijah, Elisha is thus left unprotected. And so they taunt him about this. Go up, ascend to your bald head. See if you can do what Elijah just did. In response to their mocking, he calls bears from the forest. And the emphasis here is there is a successor who will protect Israel from the mocking cry of the false prophets of Israel. There is a head who will bring justice to the suffering ones of Israel. In fact, this is seen in the center of our text, the departure of Elijah. The horses and the chariots of fire are one of the most confounding things in the Bible. There are two men in the Old Testament that do not taste death, Enoch and Elijah. Elijah ascends to glory. Now again, there's a connection to the past here. Elijah is the new Moses. Moses ascended to the mountain, died, never to be seen again. Some wonder, there's lots of different uh, midrashes about Moses perhaps being taken up into heaven. But Elijah ascends in a windstorm. Remember from our last text we had before Advent, the assumption of God's presence being in the wind. Elijah calls, Elisha calls Elijah his father and also calls him what in verse 12? He calls him the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. Elijah doesn't simply, Elijah doesn't simply ride Yahweh's chariot, but he is Yahweh's chariot. He is the prophet who bears God's presence and serves as the true protector of the land. The question is a real one. Is there a God in Israel? Is there a head? And Elijah says, the true protector. And it does not lie with kings or horses or his chariots, but it lies with Elijah. The failure of the kings in the story of of this book, The Kings, continues to emphasize this over and over again. And yet, even as the kings fail, Israel's protected how? By their head, and it will be protected by their new head, Elisha. Now, I want to connect this a little bit to Jesus. Jesus is the ascended prophet. He, like Elijah, was taken up into heaven. Jesus is the chariot and the horsemen of his people. We will be ushered into heaven through the vehicle of Jesus. Some trust in chariots, Scripture says. Some trust in horses, but not us. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The chariots and the horses are the glory of a kingdom. And our king is our glory, our head. He is the chariot and the horse. The medium is the message. And the church is filled with God's spirit. And everywhere the church is, every time she gathers, it's a sign to the vast kingdoms of the world, there is a king, and his name is Jesus, and here where the church touches the world is where his throne touches the world, and Jesus is our head because Jesus tasted death for our sins, so we, because of Jesus, have been raised out of uh, that death in resurrection life. Because Jesus is our head, not a hair can fall from our head without our Father knowing about it. He will protect us, and when we ascend to the heavenlies in death, Paul tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He takes us to the place where we already reside with him, seated in the heavenlies, and he is the chariot and the horses. He is the glory and the lifter of our heads. Amen.
Lastly, there is a successor who not only carries our mantle, there is a successor who is not only our head, but there is a successor who carries a double portion. Elisha will ask, give me a double portion, Elijah. The Hebrew is actually a double mouthful. Have you ever tried to stick more than too much food in your mouth? Give me, give me some of that portion of the firstborn, Elijah. Mark me as the preeminent son, the firstborn son of the prophets. Is there a God in Israel right now? In between, who knows who the king is? In between you being taken up to heaven, will God leave us, forsake us? Mark me as your successor. Do double in me what you have done. And according to tradition, Elijah receives, and he does 16 miracles to Elijah's eight. Elisha's mouth is made full. We see this in his ministry. No other prophet will be more synonymous with eating, drinking, feasting, and celebrating than Elisha. Well, Elijah and then who? Jesus. He comes to feast and eat with sinners. That's what our Jesus does. Elijah's response to Elisha's request for a double heaping is two big old mouthfuls of the Spirit. Now, this is always misconstrued in our day, what a double portion means. This is what a double portion means. Jesus is your and I's double portion. By him and his Spirit, we are all firstborn sons and daughters who receive double. For Elijah and later Jesus, the Spirit is what? Food, wine, drink. Elijah will provide abundant food because his mouth is full of God's Spirit. Following on the sacrifice of Jesus, our Father offers what? Bread and wine, a token to us that he will not, not deny those who seek him. If you ask for bread, I won't give you a stone, the Lord says. And then through the meal of communion, as we feed on the Son through the Spirit, God says to you and I, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The greater Elijah has ascended to heaven and fills his people with a double mouthful of his Spirit. In all of this, we of course see the picture of John and Jesus. Elijah is a type of John. Elisha is a type of Jesus. Like Jesus, the double portion will fill Elisha's ministry with healings. He will cleanse lepers and raise dead sons and restore them to their mothers. Elisha, like Jesus, will feed the hungry from 20 loaves of bread. And also Elijah is a type of Christ and Elisha is a type of his disciple. Elisha appears plowing a field, leaves home and family like disciples and follows him. Elijah won't let his master, uh, won't leave his master refusing to stay behind. Because of his, he follows Elijah, he will become like him. And after Elijah departs, he will replicate him. Elijah is a reanimation of Elijah. But make no mistake, Jesus is the better Elisha. Instead of bears mauling the mocking cries of ascend to your bald head, Jesus, when he's mocked 
on the cross as the king of the Jews. Why don't you call them? When he cries like Elijah, where are you, God? Why are you forsaking me? And those around the cross, is he calling Elijah? Jesus is entrusting himself there to his father for us. Jesus there becomes the sacrifice for us, washed in the Jordan, giving himself for us. He will ascend into a cloud, but will leave his spirit, his mantle, his double portion to us. And Jesus promises his disciples, we will do greater things than him when his spirit comes. And the church is a reanimation of the spirit of Jesus. And so today... In this moment, maybe look around. Is God here? Right now, think about your present moment. Is God here? Where you feel like the people of Israel with the departure of Elijah, where you are in exile like the hearers of the book of Kings, where you long for God to speak in your life or God to act into your world. And what does God give you right now? He gives you this word. He gives you this meal. He gives you this people. He gives you the spirit. A double portion of it. Where do you go when you feel empty and dry and lost, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd? You come here where the Lord reminds you there is a successor. His name is Jesus. And in the church, where by the Spirit we say, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Where we say, greater things we will do because his Spirit has come. Rest in the good news of God's grace this morning. His Spirit is in you if you are in him. And because of this, whatever you are facing... You will be more than conquerors in him who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. God, help us. Man, so rich is your word. We need Jesus, man. As we think about the world that we live in right now, it's so easy for us to be discouraged. When we look at our lives and things we face and the maxim our world offers us that we are our own, we, we need Jesus. And so I pray this morning that however we might be finding ourselves, is, is the God, is God alive in Israel? Is God alive here in his church? That this morning we might see that Jesus is alive right here we might look to our left and our right as we come forward to take communion as we are sent out from this place told greater things we will do than Jesus give us faith eyes to see this morning God that you are here in our midst animating us to be your people in a world that needs it we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord Amen